0: Shabu'at Welcome to Tanakh Dakam. This is Shani Taragan, and today we're going to begin Parshat Tazria. But each time we begin a new Parshah, it is incumbent upon us to re-examine the sequence of the Parshiyot. Beginning with Sefer Vayikra, we saw the opening of the Sefer, wherein Hashem invited Moshe to enter the Mishkan. It continued with a discussion of the sacrifices and of man's ability to offer them before Hashem. Following the discussion of the sacrifices, the Torah describes the seven days of inauguration culminating with a divine encounter on the eighth day. Thus, from the beginning of the Sefer up until the revelation of the Shekhinah on the eighth day, the Torah addressed one aspect, kirva adam kiakriv, man's religious experience in realm of the possibility of a man-God encounter. And at the very moment of climax, when the fire emerged before Hashem and consumed whatever was upon the altar in front of the entire nation, we found an abrupt disruption. Aaron's sons entered the Kodesh without any divine command, as we saw numerous times. utam. <laughs> and they are immediately consumed. In an ephemeral moment, everything changes. It becomes clear that there are laws and conditions describing the possibility of human service in the Mikdash. Am Yisrael must learn, that man's encounter with the divine cannot be taken for granted. That's why there was a slight interruption in the regular program. The context or the parshiot relating to the various aspects of tumah and taharah emphasize other aspects of religious experience. They teach us about an infinite distance that separates man and Hashem. Impurity, Tumah, is an inseparable part of human reality. It accompanies his birth as well as his death, as we're going to learn. It is bound up with what he eats, how he eats. It's bound up with marital relations. Mortal man, who is going to be pure and at times impure, cannot always come before God. He may be ethical, moral, spiritual, but it is incumbent upon man to also attempt to transcend the limits of the human condition by purifying himself from Tum'ah that is reflective of that condition. Last week, we began to examine the laws of Tum'an Tahara as they appear in Parshat Shemini. We briefly surveyed some of the primary sources of Tum'ah outline the mechanism and the differences between tahara, tum'ah, sheket, Consider the linkage of the restriction of entering the precincts of the temple when one is in a state of tum'ah, and although the exact meaning of tum'ah still remains obscure at this point, it's clear by now that the matter has absolutely nothing to do with physical hygiene, and albeit we did mention the philosophy of the Rambam in Moren Vukhim, stating how there may be some positive physical attributes to eating the pure versus the impure animals. Nonetheless, Rav Yehuda Alevi of 12th century Spain remarks in his Sefer Kuzari, Urine, excrement, and the like, notwithstanding their noxiousness and pathogenic qualities, are not sources of tuma, whereas a seminal issue is. So if tuma and tahara are not expressions of clean and unclean, then what are they exactly? So we've been mentioning numerous times how these are the mandates of God, but they're also supposed to teach us about the infinite abyss that separates man and Hashem. As we see more forms of what is considered Tumah, we now appreciate certain generators of tuma. For example, if we turn back to last week's parsha we found that out of all the different vessels that contract Tum'a, the earthenware vessel is the most pronounced in that it can only be purified upon actually breaking it, completely shattering its visage. It seems that the chemical makeup of the earthenware of the clay is that it can be transformed, transformed by heat, and the resulting material becomes impervious to water, proclaiming an alteration that forever separates the earthenware from its original origins. It is the stark quality of contrast, how a static matter, together with man's inventive intervention, is going to transform the vessel from pure elemental clay material. It becomes an earthenware kli, a vessel susceptible to tuma. From here we find that tuma and tahara are not arbitrary or irrational states of being, but are intrinsically related to the human condition, to the human potential that God has given us to shape our world. Wherever we find a greater degree of human potential that has left its mark on the world, there we will find a greater susceptibility to tumah. We will learn later in Sefer Bamidbar how the greatest form of tumah is conveyed by the human corpse. The human being has the unique potential to spiritually develop, to grow, to permanently alter the moral in addition to the physical state of the world. When the human being dies, his potential dissipates. He can no longer transcend his static equilibrium. He can no longer perform mitzvot in order to become, in order to continue a process of closeness to God. Death cuts short that opportunity. That's why as we began last week, we noted how the specter of death hovers over all the different categories of Tuma is described at the end of Prashachmini, the dead animal, the reptile, the bird, the all tame because the world of man and the world of lower creatures are intertwined. When they die, we too experience the ache of corporeal decay. We cannot remain spiritually immune to the effects of death around us, and wherever the life force fades away, the state of tuma encroaches. We're now going to begin in Parsha Tazriya, the second category of Tuma generators, almost all related to the function or the malfunction of human reproductive organs pertaining to the same theme, more physiological in nature, but still relating not necessarily to the cessation of physical life, but even the dissipation of potential life. We're going to see this in the case of the Zav, the Zava, the Nida, the menstruating woman. And as we find at the beginning of this week's Parsha. The childbearing woman. The pregnant woman contains within her body the miracle of new life information. When through the act of birth she releases the fetus, she's introduced new life in the world, but she no longer has the process of life or that potential for the growth of life that was latent within her. What is now a beginning for her offspring, paradoxically, is a loss of her connection to life. She is now bereft of that life that was growing inside her body. That she enters a temporary state of Tumah to be relieved by the counting of days, immersion in a mikveh, and the bringing of prescribed offerings. So together, let us begin with the first few p'sukim of Parshat Tazriah, the first eight verses of chapter 12. V'yedaber Adonai al Moshe Lemor, daber al B'nai Yisrael Lemor, Isha ki Tazriah, ve'olda Zachar, v'tama'a yamim, ki me'ni d'at v'otat hitma, u'vayom hashmini yemol besarar loto, u'sheloshim yom u'sheloshet yamim. תשב את דמי תהרה, בוכל קודש לו תיגע, ועל המקדש לא תבוא, עד מלות ימי תהרה. ואם נקיבת הילד, ותמעה שבועיים כנידתה, ושישים יום וששת ימים, תשב על דמי תהרה. ובמלות ימי תהרה, לבן עולבת, תביא כבס בן שנתו לעולה, ובניונה אותו לחטת, מועד הכהן. ממקור When a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be unclean for seven days. She shall be unclean as she is at the time of her nidut, of her menstrual infirmity, a state that we haven't yet learned about, but we will in chapter 15, and then again in chapters 18, and 20, where we're going to hear that such a menstruating woman is rendered impure both with regard to her entrance to the Mikdash and with regard to having intimate relations with her husband. So a woman who gives birth to a male, she is going to be unclean like the niddah woman, namely she will be limited both from going to the Mikdash for seven days and from having relations with her husband for seven days. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall remain in a state of blood purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is completed. After seven days of not going to the mikdash nor having relations with her husband, her son is circumcised. And she remains in a state of tumah from the mikdash for her 33 days. Wherein Chazal extrapolate from here that she is allowed to resume relations with her husband once she has immersed. After a total then of 40 days following the birth of a male, a woman may then again immerse, and then she may return to her relationship with the mikdash. If she bears a female, she shall be considered impure for two weeks as if she is an Eda, namely, limited from going to the mikdash and also limited from intimate relations with her husband, and she shall remain in a state of blood purification for 66 days thereafter. So in a case of a birth of a female, a woman, albeit she may return to her husband after 14 days, it's only after 80 days in total from the time of the birth of her daughter that she may return to the mikdash. And the completion of her period of purification, 40 days for a son, 80 days for a daughter, she shall go to the Kohen at the entrance of Ol Mo'ed, the tents of Meeting, with the lamb in its first year for a burnt offering, an ola, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. The Kohen shall offer it before Hashem and thereby atone on her behalf. She shall then be considered pure from her flow of blood. These are the rituals concerning she who bears a child, male or female, If, however, she does not have the means to suffice for a sheep, then she may take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for the olah, the burnt offering, the other for the chatat, the sin offering, and the kohen shall achieve atonement on her behalf, and she will be considered pure. We note from the very beginning of this chapter, and as we continue through chapters 15, we're going to find that the causes of impurity is very different than what we found in chapter 11. The former deals with impurity arising from a person's contact with a carcass of an impure animal, such that the impurity is contracted from an outside force, Whereas, starting from chapter 12, the Torah addresses forms of impurity whose source is internal, and then the ways in which one purifies oneself. These laws will continue in chapters 13 and 14 with the impurity of the mitzora, someone who is afflicted with tzara'at, and then in chapter 15, the impurity of the Zev, the the men who have seminal emissions, and that of a nida, a menstrual woman, and a zavah, Is the order of these laws merely different forms of impurity of external versus internal nature? Rashi explains that there's another possibility of how we understand the logic behind all these laws of Tuma and Tahara. In his opening commentary on the Persha he quotes Rabbi Simlai, Just as the creation of man took place after that of every animal, beast, and fowl in the act of creation, so are man's laws with regard to impurity specified after the laws of the animal, the beast, and the fowl. The Torah first states the laws of impurity relating to the animal kingdom, since their creation preceded that of man. Only after stating the laws relating to animals, the Torah discusses the form of impurity stemming from man. But what is the significance of the association of the laws of Tuma and Tahara with Briyat ulam? On one hand, the connection to creation teaches us that the laws of impurity are in fact the decrees of God. Just as God, his creator, has dominion over all of the world, he creates statues to be obeyed by man. These laws are not natural phenomena. They are chukim, laws which are decrees of the creator, and often incomprehensible to man. On the other hand, the connection to creation could be intimating that the laws of impurity are, as we said at the beginning of the Shi'ur, rooted in the act of creation. Impurity is a natural phenomenon, part of the fabric of the physical world. There are certain physical qualities which create impurity. We will continue learning in Parshat of other impurities that stem from the human body, after the impurity caused by childbirth, we will continue with the laws of leprosy and then the male and the female bodily discharges. What is the logic of the order of impurities stemming from the human body? Which system of classification is the Torah using to list these types of impurities? Why is the impurity of the woman following childbirth mentioned first? Rav Hoffman addresses this question in his commentary on Sefer Vayikra and in his brief introduction to these chapters, He asks, in fact, that if tzara'at, which is the only instance where the impure individual is sent outside of all three camps of Yisrael, not just the Mikdash, it seems that, as the most serious form of impurity, it should be listed first. And even if one says, from the perspective of the dimension of time, there's a stringency for the childbearing woman, and that she remains impure, and distance from the mikdash, in a case of a boy for 40 days or the birth of a girl for 80 days, Rav Hoffman nonetheless suggests a different answer. Because a person causes impurity in his mother the moment he emerges into the world, and therefore the Torah sees fit to start the list with the type of impurity that a person causes immediately with his birth. The Oledit appears first in order to teach us that a person's life cycle begins with a constant oscillation between impurity and purity, an inevitable pendulum. Childbirth is inherent to the life cycle, as opposed to leprosy, which is an aberration. Childbirth is a natural and desirable occurrence, and as a necessary and integral part of life, the Torah states its laws first. But The concept of impurity caused by childbirth is very unique amongst the different forms of impurity. We've already discussed how whether it's the carcass of an animal or a dead human body, or even leprosy, a serious disease which deforms the body and is related to death through its degenerating effects, these all relate somewhat to a loss of life. But childbirth is the onset of life, not death. Childbirth is an act of creation, not degeneration. Why does it cause impurity? We've already noted how childbirth involves a subjective loss of life. While the fetus is in the womb of the mother, she carries within her body an additional living being. As such, she is abounding with life. But as the baby is born, the world receives another living individual, but the mother has lost some of the life which it contained prior to the birth. It is the decrease of potential of life which causes impurity. There are other explanations, however, that are offered by Parshanim. According to the Ramban Nachmanides, impurity is related to bodily uncleanliness. During childbirth, the woman loses blood. This loss of blood is similar to nidut, to menstruation. Therefore, although childbirth is essentially a creative act, it also involves biological processes which cause impurity. The netziv, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, offers a completely different explanation for the impurity caused by childbirth. His opinion is based on what Rav Meir explains in Masechet Nida with regard to Tum'at Nida a menstruating woman who remains impure for seven days. Rabbi Mayer asks, why did the Torah ordain that the uncleanliness of menstruation should continue for seven days? And he answers, because being in constant contact with his wife, a husband might develop a loathing towards her. The Torah therefore ordained that she should be considered impure for seven days so that she shall be beloved by her husband as of the time of their first entry into the chuppah, the bridal chamber. The Nitziv learns from this explanation that this must be the reason for impurity following childbirth. After all, the Torah prohibits the childbearing woman only for the first seven days for a male or 14 days for a female after she has given birth, but she is permitted to have relations with her husband in the 33 or 66 days respectively, male and female thereafter. So the initial days are to ensure that the husband and wife do not lose their attractions to one another. The Torah prescribes a period of physical separation between husband and wife so that their excitement and love for one another remain strong and vibrant, not only following menstruation, but following childbirth as well. The next question I'd like to address is the very strange insertion after we hear about the birth and subsequent impurity of a woman after the birth of a son. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Why is this pasuk inserted in a section wherein the subject is a woman's purity and purification? This same question is posed by the Gemara Masachat Sanhedrin, and it concludes that the pasuk in our is nevertheless necessary, for why was circumcision, which was already taught previously, in Parshat lechlecha you shall keep my covenant. Why was this repeated here in Parshat Hazriyah? This was in order to permit circumcision on Shabbat, for here it mentions explicitly Uvayom Hashmini yimol or Orlato, irregardless of whether or not the day is Shabbat. But still, why teach the laws here? The connection between the date of the circumcision on the eighth day and the impurity of the Yoladet for seven days is explained in Masechat Nida Daflamet Aleph Amud Bet. The students of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai asked him, why did the Torah command that circumcision should take place on the eighth day? He answered, so that it should not happen that everyone is happy while the father and mother are grieved. Or as Rashi explains there, for during the seven days, they're still forbidden to have sexual relations. Since a Brit Mila, ever since the mitzvah to Avinu, is performed on eighth day, therefore was established that a woman who bears a son is impure for only seven days and not for 14 days like one who bears a daughter. And this is how Rav Hoffman explains as well how the birth of a daughter involves double the number of days of impurity because only by a boy the Torah lessened her days, in order so that the Yoledet may be purified on the eighth day, which is the day of his circumcision. But perhaps there's another explanation as well, taking into account that we're already sensitive to the development of seven days to eight days. We've been learning about in Parshiot Tzav and Shmini the seven days of Miluim that culminate with day eight, the day of revelation of God. Seven days of creation, seven days of a natural cycle, climaxing in the eighth day. Perhaps what the Torah is teaching us is not that there's any physiological change that happens on day eight, but there's something inherent on day eight, particularly for a son, for that is when he is commanded to have his foreskin removed and to enter the Brit of Avramabinu. There is some elevation on that date, some change in his status. We're going to see a similar law in chapter 22 of Sefer Vayikra, when Hashem commands Moshe that any young bull or sheep or goat may be offered to the mikdash only after seven days. From the eighth day and on, it is allowed to be brought as a korban. Seven days is the time that the newborn animal remains under its mother. From the eighth day on, it becomes exposed to the separateness of life, and it is then an acceptable korban before Hashem. This comparison points to a connection between circumcision and korban, and closeness to the mikdash. Perhaps through the Brit Mila, the mother becomes more conscious of an elevation of a closeness to the mikdash, and that's when her state of initial impurity from the mikdash is terminated. This may also be seen in the sensitivity of the syntax within the verses themselves. The Parsha began with "Isha Kitasria." The woman is mentioned here in third person, after having conceived and then giving birth to a male child. "Ovayom Hashmini Yimol B'sar Or Lato." The Torah seems to point to a kind of detachment of the newborn from its mother that takes place after seven days, through his circumcision on the eighth day. In our context, this detachment frees the mother of the impurity resulting from her child's birth. This is what leads us also to the very stark difference between giving birth to a male and giving birth to a female in the parsia. The accounts of the birth of a male child and that of a female child are written in opposition to each other. And in fact, each one tells a very different story. In the account of the birth of the male child, wherein the woman remains Tmei'ah for the mikdash and her husband for seven days, the woman is told, as we said, in third person. But at the same time, as a dominant character, she's presented as the subject, who conceives and then gives birth to the child, but then there is a stark contrast in the ensuing pasuk where the subject shifts from the mother to the child, only to then return to the woman's 33 days where she still can come to the mikdash. As opposed to the case of the female, the account of the birth of the female child is formulated in a very different manner. If she bears a female child, The woman, as a separate entity, is not mentioned. She remains the subject throughout all of the ensuing verses. There are many different explanations offered for these stark contrasts, ranging from anthropological explanations that we want her to come back to the Mikdash sooner upon the birth of a son, although this is not buttressed by Talmudic passages. In addition to medical explanations claiming that a woman bleeds less upon the birth of a male, for in fact the son is born with less lymphocytes in need of greater nursing, which will thereby diminish uterine blood of the mother, as opposed to the stronger female child. And we've already noted some of the Talmudic passages, such as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who explains that we want the woman to be happy together with her husband on the day of the Brit Mila, and therefore her time of impurity is curtailed. But now we have an additional explanation, namely that with regard to a son, There is a certain elevation on the eighth day. The woman is more conscious of mikdash, of seven days of a natural cycle, followed by that Yom Hashmini. And although she may still not return to the mikdash for an additional 33 days, her blood no longer renders her as impure. The 14 requisite days, though, following the birth of a female, can now be understood as something other than an unfair bias. It is the acknowledgement of the female's unique capacity to harbor and to nurture life. Since the female infant is herself capable of one day sustaining, nourishing, giving birth to new life just like her mother, there is an inseparable bond that exists from the onset. As opposed to the Isha, who is mentioned in third person by the male, by the son, the woman, she is a natural part of the process. She remains part of the picture the entire time. The delivery of a female child to a mother constitutes a double loss of potential, in so far as the mother is concerned, as it is not as if she remains tmea for the future tuma of her daughter, but rather, from the moment that she gives birth to a female, she feels a double loss of potential life. She sees in her daughter the future to bring and sustain life, and this results in a state of tuma lasting twice as long as that associated with the birth of a male. There is one last issue in our section that requires explanation, namely, following the 33 days of blood purification for a male or 66 days for a female, the Torah requires that a mother must bring a burnt offering and a sin offering, an ola and a chatat. We've already learned that a chatat is brought for something that someone commits unwittingly. What sin obliges the mother to bring a sin offering? The Shadal suggests that the obligation of the mother to bring the sin offering is similar to the obligation of bringing an offering in other cases of impurity, such as the mitzora, the Zav, the Zavah. He suggests that the common denominator of all of these cases of impurity is, as we stated previously, their connection to death. This contact with the morbid and the survival of it require an offering. While giving birth, the woman's life was in danger. So now she owes a sacrifice for having survived the birth process. Ibn Ezra and the Ramban cite an explanation based on Mesechat Nida, Daf Lamed Aleph Amulbet. Rav Shimon bar Yochai was asked by his disciples, why did the Torah ordain that a woman after childbirth should bring a sacrifice? And he replied, for when she kneels in bearing, she swears that she will have no intercourse with her husband. The Torah therefore ordained that she should bring a sacrifice for the swearing. The sin offering is not due to the physical process of giving birth, but rather to the mother's thoughts and reactions to the pain of giving birth. Her thoughts of no longer conceiving and her shvuat shav, her void oath, that's in effect what requires atonement. Rav Davids V. Hoffman agrees that the sacrifice of the woman who gives birth stems from a similar obligation as all other cases of impurity. However, he gives a different explanation of this obligation. We note that the obligation to bring a sin offering is not due to the process of giving birth nor to the thoughts that go through the woman's mind, rather due to the outcome of being in a state of impurity. And once one is impure, one is prohibited from entering the mikdash. The state of impurity creates a barrier between man and God. It is this distance and separation from Hashem that requires atonement. As we continue with the other laws of impurity, we're going to note this pattern of anyone who remains in a state of impurity for more than seven days, basically has created this rift between himself and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, has to a certain degree broken a natural cycle based on the seven days of creation. And therefore, before one re-engages with God, one first has to offer a chatat, as if to say to God, God, it wasn't my fault. I was in this physiological state. I just gave birth. Nonetheless, as a result, a barrier was created. And therefore, I'm bringing this chatat to tell you unwittingly, I now have a separation and I would like to overcome that separation. And the proof is that together with the chatat, one also offers an olah, the burnt offering that expresses complete commitment to God. The destiny of Am Yisrael, as we saw in the concluding psukim of Parashat Yitam Kedoshim Ki Kadosh Ani, You should be a holy people. This mission requires an ongoing relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Any interruption in this relationship requires a chatat, a some form of atonement. Being cut off from the mikdash, from proximity to God, for over seven days, contradicts the essence of the Jewish people as a whole, undermines our natural relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Occasionally, as in the case of childbirth, this separation is inevitable, natural, and necessary. However, it's only a temporary aberration. After bringing her chatat and her olah, the proud mother can once again enter the mikdash. She returns to the natural condition of closeness and continuous attachment to Hashem. Tomorrow, we will continue with chapter 13 with the laws of impurity of the mitzvah, the person afflicted with tzaraat. What that is and what the effects are, Bez Hashem will discuss in our next year.